This is about a movie about a couple of killers. Harry Callahan. And a homicidal maniac. The one with the badge is Harry. Oh! they called him Dirty Harry. And he kept inventing new ones. Don't pass that on me. That was a pretty good pinch you made yesterday. The chief was pleased. He was, huh? Yeah, he really was. He wanted me to tell you, well done. I'll tell you how deeply moved I am. How do you like that? I pass along a compliment? You could at least be a little bit polite. It might not even kill you to say thanks. <laughs> Much rather say thanks to a raise. Hey, Harry. Check communication, something from Chicago. I've got nothing. I'm putting somebody with you. Well, you know what happens to the guys that I've worked with. Dietrich's still in the hospital with a bullet in his gut, and Fanducci's dead. Now, you're working with Gonzalez, or you're not working. Now, that's straight from the fifth floor. You got it? Doesn't it drive your wife crazy? No. Nope. Yeah, she got used to it. No, she never did, really. Well, what then? She's dead. Oh, please forgive me. She was driving home late one night, and a drunk crossed the center line. There's no reason for it, really. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Look, I want you to tell Chico that I understand you know, him quitting. I, I think he's right. This is no life for you two. Why do you stay in it, then? I don't know. I really don't. Send Inspector Callahan in. Mr. Mayor, Inspector Callahan. All right, let's have it. Have what? Your report. What have you been doing? Oh, well, for the past three quarters of an hour, I've been sitting on Sam, your outer office, waiting on you. Damn it all, Harry. That's the mayor you're talking to. Clint Eastwood. Detective Harry Callahan. You don't assign him. Stop! To murder cases. You just turn him loose. Now, what the hell is he doing up there? Hey everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program in which we ask, Is It Yours? Today we're here to look at the 1971 film Dirty Harry and I, Paul Spataro, am joined by my good friend and Listen to the Prophets and Keep Them Flying co-host, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hello. Hello. Welcome aboard, Andy. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's always lovely to be on a podcast where you've never heard it because no episodes have been released yet. Well, as as we record this today, I'm probably posting the first episode tomorrow. So the reason I asked you to come on today is because you and I have talked about Dirty Harry in the past, and you know, no 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 hidden surprises here. We're both big fans of the movie, and for that matter, the franchise, and for that matter, the main star of the movie. Oh so, yeah. So I thought, hmm. What's a good movie to do with Andy? <laughs> well, one of the things about it is is Clint Eastwood's magnetism and star power. I mean, Clint's made a couple of bad movies over his career, but he has never been bad in any of them. See, there's certain actors that I say are good no matter what they're in, and 
that would be, you know, I mean, and they've been in some terrible movies. Robert Duvall is one of the actors I would say that for. Gene Hackman is one of the actors I would say that for. And people disagree with me, but Michael Caine is one of the actors I would say that about. Uh, Michael Caine's always watchable. Yeah, I think I think they have enough charisma and just, I guess, enough work in the trade that they. I don't ever think I've seen them put in a bad performance. Mm. I think if I thought hard enough, I'd probably be able to come up with one or two where Clint kind of mailed it in, which is not, I think, not true for them. But even at that, he's just like I think your, your first word when you said star power. I think that's that's what describes him. He's he's just got something that makes you, you know, just draws your eyes to him anytime he's on the screen. Mm. So, you know, while he's been in some. He has been in some terrible movies. You know which one I'm going to say? Bad performance, bad movie? Pink mm. Cadillac. Yeah, that's the one that always comes up as well. And what's the one he did with Charlie Sheen? The Rookie. The Rookie's not great. Yeah, that, that came, I think, at a point in his career where he was more interested in directing than acting. So I think he, he kind of lost his way as far as acting. Because I do believe he's an underrated actor. Oh, I, I think he very definitely is. I, I couldn't agree with you more because I think he's one of those actors. He's very self-deprecating about his own ability as an actor. But what he does is very, very difficult to do. You know, just being able to command the screen as well as he does with minimal dialogue, just being able to just walk on and have everybody around you suddenly defer to you is that's that's talent. That's charisma. Yeah, oh, clearly. But there's also, like you say, he's got minimum dialogue in a lot of the movies. And there's a lot of them where he gets a lot of emotion through to the viewer through, you know, smoldering <laughs> on the mm. screen. Or, or the occasional time, and, and I think it's very powerful, the occasional time where all of a sudden he does break into a grin. All of a sudden, you know, it just catches you because you don't expect that from him. He's, mm. never, he's never like a silly character. And so, in this, in the "Do you feel lucky?" scene, where he just has that big, wide grin on his face. In in the first, the first time he does it, yeah, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. Um, but Clint held his own against Meryl Streep. Oh, Bridges of Madison County, yeah, which is a, a really sweet, lovely little movie. My wife loves Bridges of Madison County. Yeah, well, he's he's been one of my all-time favorites. There was a time shortly before the movies that we were just talking about, where where he was basically must must view uh acting uh from the point where i was old enough to just kind of like wander off on my own and go to the movies up until around then if he came out with a new movie i saw it mm. he is he was in the last half of the 80s early 90s he was with harrison ford for me as somebody i would watch him in anything yeah same here in movies uh i'm trying to think what was which was the one where he was the police detective who was chasing the sexual deviant, but he had his own... Oh, uh, the, 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 not the gauntlet, tightrope. Tightrope. That's one that I feel like was always underrated as far as his performance goes. The movie's a little difficult at moments, but I think the performance was terrific. Hmm. I think the only thing that let Clint down was his insistence on having Chandra Locke in every one of his films. <laughs> well, that, that ended after a while, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and he was, you know, he, he was also in some movies that were just made just for the fun of it, like The Gauntlet. Clearly, mm. that was just to be, you know, let's let's do a, a shoot 'em up, chase 'em up, you know, action, balls to the wall movie. But it's a good one. 
I think so. I think so too. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, really great film. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good one. And you know, I could honestly, I can do without the two uh, every which way but loose movies. They don't really do too much for me. But no, it, well, I think I think he's admitted to to, to they were for the money. <laughs> but at the same time, it was a, they were they were big hits. So another one sh- which I felt like he showed good range in was uh, Honky Tonk Man. I've never seen Honky Tonk Man. All right, well, I, I I would recommend it for a quiet viewing. It's not right. you know, not something that's gonna you know have you at the edge of your seat at any moment. Yeah, it's one of the few that I've never seen. But Heartbreak Ridge is a good one. Yeah, that's another fun one. That's towards the I thought that was the, towards the end of his being able to carry off being the tough guy mm. as far as age goes. Yeah, well, was, I think the thing with 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 Heartbreak Ridge is how he he does this in a lot of his movies, and I don't think he gets the credit for it. But he subverts his own image a lot. So, yes, he's playing the tough-as-nails drill sergeant, which, you know, on paper is our typical Clint Eastwood role. But he spends the entire film reading women's magazines to try and connect with his wife. Oh, yeah. Which is very funny. Yeah, he, he I don't think he ever had an, a problem with, oh, you're not making me seem tough enough in this movie. In fact, you know, a lot of them, I believe Heartbreak Ridge, I think he directed that as well. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the ones where they didn't have a problem doing something to go against that image were ones that he directed. Oh, yeah, he always seems more than willing to send himself up. But that's one of the things about his career is clearly, fairly early on into his movie career, he decided, you know, I like being in front of the camera, but I like being behind it even more. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that I think uh, Don Siegel, the director of Dirty Harry, I think took him under his wing because in the scene that we talked about, the first... uh, do you feel lucky scene? There's the theater marquee behind him, and on the marquee is Play Misty for Me, which had not mm. yet come out when this was when this was released. And Play Misty's his directorial debut, isn't it? Which is a yep. bit flabby in the middle, Play Misty. Which is a shame, because it's a really interesting film. And I think he just gets a bit carried away with, because he said, is it the Mardi Gras in the middle of it? I think he got too much in love with filming Mardi Gras. Or was whatever. it Mardi Gras? Was it the uh, was it Festival of the Dead or something? No, I thought I think it was the uh, the Monterey uh, Music Festival. Yeah, it was something, and he he really did film it because it happened while they were there. But that's and that's his me, hometown and everything, so he was getting a little not hometown, but that's his area. And, yeah, Maine, uh, not Maine. That's Stephen King, isn't it? Was it Carmel? Yeah, he's yeah he's from Carmel, but I, but that's I think right by Monterey, and I think he you know he got caught up in it a little bit. Mm, he could have done with trimming that bit in the middle, but it's a really interesting. It was sudden. It was um, it's fatal attraction before it's fatal, fatal attraction, attraction existed. Long before fatal attraction, yeah. But, uh, you know, so I, I think uh, Don Siegel. Well, and Don Siegel actually appears in Play Misty for me. He plays the bartender. Oh right. But we're not here for for all of these other movies. We're here for Dirty Harry. And <laughs> I've I've asked this a few times so far. Now, keeping in mind this is 1971. How much do you think it cost him to make this movie? In 1971, $3 million. That's not a bad guess. It cost him $4 Because there's a lot of location filming. So it cost 4 right? Which, in 1971, I think that's a pretty fair budget, actually. I yeah, don't think if it's, you I don't think it's breaking the bank, but I think it's pretty up there. But the only thing I, I settled on a, what would be a reasonably high figure at that point is it's all on location. Yeah, and that is true. There's, there's a... a heck of a lot of location scenes in this movie there's there's very little set work i think the only mm. set work is really when they're in the uh <clears throat> excuse me when when they're in like the office for the mayor things like that 
Yeah. But even then, they, they don't look like they're on sound stages. Yeah, that's they true. They look like they're actually in buildings. Now, I don't know if they are, but it, it certainly looks authentic because it's got... I think the thing that's great about Dirty Harry now that it's a period piece is that it's got all that wonderfully brown that you remember the 70s for. I mean, Harry's suit is brown. And there's just some wonderfully dated but funny moments in it when he complains about the price of his pants when he gets shot in the leg. Yeah, I think they're like $20. Yeah, and you're like, did they cost me $20? It can damn well hurt. And you're like, $20 for a pair of pants? You don't know. No, it's you're probably looking. the equivalent of a $150 pair of pants now. Yeah, so that brown suit cost him a lot of money, and you're looking at it going, yeah, okay. <laughs> what do you think this movie made? Oh, double its budget easy. Now, this the, the number they give me here is from Box Office Mojo, right. and it's worldwide numbers, so that inflates right. it some. So I'm going to give you that heads up and ask you if you want to even consider maybe changing your number. No, I, I think if it, if it was made on $4 million, I think it probably made about $8 million worldwide. $35,976,000. Wow. That's a smash hit then, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. But On I a $4 think, million dollar budget? I think they said it was the number four movie for the year. Box office performance. Here we go. Uh, the fourth highest grossing film of 1971, earning approximately $36 million. Oh, no, and it's U.S. theatrical release. It's not even worldwide. Right. So that's not even Making worldwide. Making it a major financial success compared with its modest $4 million budget. So they're saying $4 million was a modest budget. So yeah, our numbers right. may not be, you know, our thoughts on, on the numbers may not actually be accurate. I don't know. Because I thought $4 million in 1971 was, you know, average to above average. I didn't think that would be considered modest. No, I thought that would have been moderately high budgeted at that point when we consider Star Wars was in between 7 and 9. And that was, what, six years later? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought $4 million would have been considered relatively high budget. That's what I would have thought as well. Shows what we know. Yeah, that's, that's why you're listening to us. <laughs> because we're adorable. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> uh, so when and I, I first saw this in 1971 at, ten, at nine years old. Yeah, uh, oh, brilliant. Corrupted at an early age. In the movie theater with my dad and my brother. And... Uh, I feel like this 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 was like this was like my coming of age movie. This was when I this was to my recollection this was the first truly grown up movie that I ever sat through, understood what was going on, and enjoyed. Mm. So I feel like this is my coming of age movie. <laughs> I, I I know you could not have seen it in the movies. No, I wasn't even born. <laughs> which makes me so sad. I probably saw it on video cassette in the early eighties because my granddad was a huge Clint Eastwood fan. And we would watch, he would rent all the Clint movies after we got our video recorder in uh, 82 or 83, I think. Uh, and he, I remember him renting The Gauntlet, uh, all the Dollars trilogy, all the Dirty Harry movies. So I probably watched this with him. And um, I, I always loved the Dirty Harry films, even as a kid when I probably didn't quite understand what was going on. But of them all, this is the one I went back to over and over again because his performance in it is just so laconic and laid back but cool. But as you get older, you actually start to realise that this isn't just an action revenge fantasy. It's saying something. It was saying something important at the time 
but what it was actually saying, the subtext of the film, is still important today. And I think that's why it's it's become as well regarded over the years as it has. When it was originally reviewed, apparently it was reviewed as just being a violent fantasy and slightly dismissed. And over the years, it's been reappraised as no, this film's actually saying something. There's substance to this. And I think, like truly, the best films, it's it's gotten past its original review and is now much more well regarded because of that. But yeah, I probably saw it on video cassette. Well, this has stayed with me since 1971, and it's been one of my favorite movies since then. And I'm it's I'm really spoiling the quotable. ending here because when we rated, you know, people kind of know what I'm what I'm going with on this one. Yeah, yeah, it's eminently quotable as well. To this oh, yeah. day, you know, there's a couple of films you'll throw regular quotes in in your everyday life, and Superman's primary for me. But this and Outlaw Josie Wales get a lot of play from me, and no one ever recognizes them. Uh, I, get, I reckon so, I say on a daily basis, which is from <laughs> Josie Wales. But every dirty job that comes along, I, that gets weekly play. And um, the thing, you know, I hate everybody speech is just one of my favourites. I mean, Harry doesn't actually say that, but it's genius. And the amount of times in any work week that I want to say, well, for the past 45 minutes, I've been sitting on my ass in your hallway. But it, I never actually have the nerve to say that one. <laughs> He says that to the Submariner. Yeah, he does, yeah. <laughs> and for anybody who doesn't know, he, the, the, that's uh, Harry speaking to the mayor, uh, who's played the by John Vernon. John Vernon, yeah. Who, who was not only Dean Wormer in Animal House, but he also did the voice of the Submariner, among others, mm. in the uh, Marvel cartoons of 1966. Oh, John, 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 John Vernon, sorry, he's brilliant. But I, In I, should, I, should give, I guess I should give the plot to this now for anybody who doesn't already know it. A psychopath serial killer calling himself Scorpio, played by Andy Robinson, shoots a young woman in a San Francisco swimming pool from a nearby rooftop. San Francisco Police Department Inspector Harry Callahan, Clint Eastwood, finds a blackmail message demanding the city pay him $100,000, whilst also promising that for each day his demand is refused, he will commit a murder. His next victim will be a Catholic priest or a nigger. Excuse me, but that's the word. The chief of police and the mayor, John Vernon, assign the inspector to the case, despite his reputation for violent solutions. While in a local diner, Callahan observes a bank robbery in progress. He goes out and kills two of the robbers while wounding a third. Callahan then challenges him. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, it would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? After the robber surrenders, he tells Callahan that he must know if the gun was still loaded. I gotta have a problem with the synopsis there, because the word is, I gots to know. <laughs> Callahan pulls the trigger with the weapon pointed directly at the robber and laughs as it is revealed to be empty. Scorpio targets a gay black male, but is interrupted by a police helicopter and escapes. Later that night, Callahan and his rookie partner, Chico Gonzalez, played by Re Rennie Santoni, pursues a likely suspect, but it turns out to be a false alarm. Following that, Callahan successfully halts a suicide attempt after which he reveals that the origin of his nickname comes from the fact that he's given every dirty job to do. When Scorpio kills a young black boy from another rooftop, the police believe the killer will next pursue a Catholic priest. 
Callahan and Gonzalez wait for Scorpio near a Catholic church, where a rooftop-to-rooftop shootout ensues, with Callahan attempting to snipe Scorpio with a rifle, while Scorpio returns fire with a submachine gun. Scorpio escapes, killing a police officer disguised as a priest. Scorpio then demands $200,000, $1.2 million today, for a teenage girl he has kidnapped, threatening to let her suffocate otherwise. The mayor decides to pay and tells Callahan to deliver the money with no tricks, but the inspector wears a covert listening device, brings a switchblade, and has his partner follow him. As Scorpio sends Callahan to various payphones throughout the city to make sure he's alone, the chase ends at Mount Davidson. Scorpio brutally beats Callahan and tells him he's going to kill him and let the girl die anyway. Gonzalez comes to his partner's rescue but is wounded. Callahan stabs Scorpio in the leg, but the killer escapes without the money. The doctor who treats Scorpio's wound phones the police and tells Callahan that his new partner that he has seen Scorpio in Kazar Stadium. The officers break in and Callahan shoots Scorpio in his wounded leg. When Scorpio refuses to tell him the location of the girl and demands his rights, Callahan makes him confess by standing on the wounded leg, but the police are too late to save her. Because Callahan searched Scorpio's home without a warrant and improperly seized his rifle for evidence, the district attorney, Joseph Summer, has no choice but to let Scorpio go. Outraged, Callahan warns that Scorpio will kill again and follows him on his own time. To thwart Callahan, Scorpio pays to have himself beaten by a thug, then claims the inspector is responsible. Despite Callahan's protests, he is ordered to stop following Scorpio. After stealing a gun from a liquor store owner, Scorpio kidnaps a school busload of children and demands $200,000 ransom and a plane to leave the country. The mayor again insists on paying, but Callahan angrily refuses when asked to deliver the ransom. Instead, he locates the bus and jumps onto the top from a bridge. The bus crashes into a dirt embankment and Scorpio flees into a nearby quarry where he has a running gun battle with Callahan. Finally, Scorpio spots a young boy sitting near a pond and grabs him as a hostage. The inspector feigns surrender, but fires, wounding Scorpio in his left shoulder. The boy runs away and Callahan stands over Scorpio, gun drawn, reprising his Do You Feel Lucky, punk, speech. Scorpio lunges for his gun and Callahan shoots him instantly, causing him to fall into the water. As Callahan watches the dead body floating, he takes out his inspector badge and hurls it into the water before walking away. The end. When, as, as a nine-year-old, the scene when he threw the badge away really confused me. Hmm. And I do, I still feel there's a little bit of uncertainty as to that, especially considering the sequels. Because at the time, I took it for, okay, he's had enough, he's quitting, he's done. Hmm. But obviously... Which I think is, is how you're supposed to take it if you view this as a single mover. But, uh, you know, obviously... <laughs> he's he's back for a lot more, so yeah, with no mention in the second one. So I, I just fact, take it as a little bit ambiguous now, and that it's you know that he was just fed up with the whole thing and needed you know he needed to be have a break. But I think the you know the questions that are asked in this uh, you know the primary one is you know do, does the end justify the means? Mm-mm. Well, that's why Harry Callahan is a fascinating character because he is very much an old West cowboy put into modern society, and then suddenly you've got the modern society of the paperwork and the rules and the, at that time newly formed Miranda rights, 
Uh, and it's, I think, for me, it's best summed up in the scene where I'm all broken up about that man's rights. Where, you know, Harry's right. This guy is a clear and present danger. And just because he didn't arrest him properly, should they have let him go? Well, yes, they should, because he didn't arrest him properly. And that's one of the fascinating things about watching it now as an adult, when you can see that both arguments are put forward and you as an audience member are left up to make your mind whose side you're on. Now, the film's obviously going to side with Harry because that's who it's about. But I like that there's moral ambiguity to this. It isn't black and white. It isn't simple. And I, again, I think that's why it's become a classic over the years. These are still questions that we're asking today. I think that the movie does present it in a light slightly more favorable to Harry. Hmm. But they never present the other argument as being silly or ridiculous. They do, you know, give you something to think about throughout. And ultimately, I do think what is surprising is ultimately when you think about it, you do have to side against Harry because, you know, and, and you know, full, full disclosure here, my dad was a police officer. So I... I I tend to side with police. When people talk about police doing bad things, my first thought is, do we have the whole story? You know, or are we just getting the internet meme uh, of, oh yeah, they're all so bad. And my second thought is, even if the officer is wrong, I think the the bad officers are in the minority. I think there are many, many, many more good cops than there are bad cops. Of course there are bad cops out there. So... That ultimately is what makes me side, though, with with the establishment in this, because since there are some bad cops out there, you can't give them free reign to do anything they want. If they were all good cops like Harry Callahan is, you could. Mm. But, you know, that's that's the thing that that's that's troubling about it is that, you know, he is a good cop, you know, that his his motivations are pure. And he does get the job done, but he does it by taking a few shortcuts, and that that just can't be allowed, and that's frustrating. On the other hand, again, if you you know it, those few bad cops would spoil the whole bunch, and you you can't allow that. Which is in the sequel, they put Harry up against a lot of bad cops as if they were reacting to the criticism of the first film that Harry was as bad as the person that he was hunting. But was he? Was he really? Did Harry really shoot anyone who didn't deserve it? Not only did he not shoot anybody who didn't deserve it, he, he never took pleasure in administering pain. You know, there's, there's the scene when he, when he tortures Scorpio. And the only reason he did so was because... He was worried about the girl. Yeah, there was a teenage girl who was being held that, you know, was being threatened to be killed. He did not know she was already dead. He was trying to get to her before she would die to -hmm. save her life. And again, does the end justify the means? Now, had even, even under the circumstances where he did what he did, had he been able to save that girl, the end absolutely justifies the means. Yeah, if he had been able to save her life, even if this guy had a had a you know a, a, a viable lawsuit for having been tortured and all of that stuff, you say, well, it's worth it because he saved this young girl's life. Now the girl, mm. the girl, uh, you know, you you only see the girl in in flashes or whatever, but she was she was played by an actress 
who went on to to play a supporting role on Welcome Back, Carter, hmm. as Hatsi Tatsi. <laughs> so that's I think an auspicious moment, debut, Farah. Yeah, really. I'll I'll take us into the cast a little bit here because the movie stars and uh, Clint Eastwood, Andy Robinson, who anybody who listens to us on listen to the prophets knows what we think of Andy Robinson. Harry Gardino, Rennie Santoni, who is now more famous for being Poppy on Seinfeld, hmm. John Vernon, who, who we talked about. Uh, that's the cast listed here. And while Clint Eastwood steals this movie, I do think he has a real, real solid supporting cast here. I, I think I'd argue Andrew Robinson steals the movie. That's, yeah, you know what, you can, you can make that argument because he is possibly the most compelling villain in a movie of this nature that i've ever seen yeah because he is just an irredeemable scumbag which is what you have to have to put somebody like like harry judge dread essentially into this situation is you have to make the bad guys much much worse and this is a man who very definitely exploits the system to get away with what he's doing and his performance, Andy Robinson's just brilliant in this film. The bit at the end where he's on the yellow bus, we're going to the ice cream factory, see how ice cream's made. He's absolutely, sing, damn you, sing! He's absolutely fantastic throughout the whole film. What, what I love about that scene too is he starts off actually charming the kids. Yeah. Well, and he's he got that he... pretty face, hasn't he? You trust him. He's got blue eyes, he's got a, an open face, he's got the curls surrounding him. He looks like a nice guy. And, and he starts off very, very nice to them. He gets them all to sing. But he is a psychopath, and mm. he cannot maintain that for long. And as soon as the kids start getting antsy, he can't talk at their level and calm them down. <laughs> and he ends up hitting a, a child and hitting the, uh, the bus matron. In, in fact, I believe he basically pistol whips the bus matron. Yeah. And then he, then he, then he has to threaten them, you know, I'm going to kill all your mothers and fathers. <laughs> and I shouldn't really be laughing at him, but that's the thing with the film. You do find his performance slightly amusing whilst acknowledging that he is an utter psychopath. When, when VCRs, <clears throat> excuse me, first came in vogue, this was one of the first movies I obtained. Mm. And I remember sitting with my brother-in-law watching this movie, and when we got to the end... We watched, probably rewound and watched the final scene about five times. And one of the things, I was talking to Bill about this the other day, one of the things that just caught me was the maniacal laughter that he lets out as he goes for his gun mm -hmm. when Clint is doing the do you feel lucky moment. You know, he, he at that point, he's sure he's going to pick up his gun and shoot Harry. Mm. And he just lets out this, like, cackle. And the the way that Eastwood plays both of those differently, despite saying the same dialogue, the first time it's kind of playful and, you know, he knows that he's he's not got any bullets left. And then the second time it's deadly serious. This is a guy who's reached the end of his rope and he's now pissed off. And I think Callahan's one of the most interesting characters Eastwood's played in the sense that the film puts us on his side. We see it all through his point of view. He's, he's never wrong as he goes through the film. He is shown to be the typical guy who books authority, but kind of gets away with it because authority's incompetent. I don't think any of the people in charge of Harry are deemed really competent in what they're doing. 
but he, he is a contrast. He is he is racist in some instances. He is a bit of a misogynist occasionally, although he has that really sweet scene where he explains what happened to his wife, to oh, his to, partner's to wife. Chico's that, wife. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice moment. But he has that. It's his rigid moral code that separates him from Scorpio. And that's why I think essentially this was the perfect role for Eastwood to segue from the Western hero that he was into more more contemporary films. Because essentially he's still playing the man with no name. He's still playing the guy who rides into town, fixes the problems and goes. Unfortunately, he's now plopped into the middle of a bureaucratic situation where he can't just leave town at the end of it. Now, and for anybody who doesn't realize it, uh, Lethal Weapon is them saying, okay, let's take Harry Callahan and we're going to partner him up with De- with uh, Danny Glover. Mm-hmm. Because the story about his wife is virtually the same as Mel Gibson's story in Lethal Weapon. Yeah, and the they, suicide scene. And they out and out ripped off the suicide jumper scene. Yeah, it's exactly the same. But the, this movie was so influential. I mean, the, the main plot, of the psychopathic killer was ripped off for any number of TV cop shows. But that whole sequence of him running from phone booth to phone booth, I can think of at least three shows off the top of my head that did that. TJ Hooker definitely did it. Starsky and Hutch did it. I'm pretty sure Adam 12 may have done it if it came after this. I think, but Bar- pretty I think much Beretta did it too. Beretta did it. Every single cop show in the 70s did that plot. Well, this, this was somewhat inspired by the Zodiac killer. Which I'm not really totally familiar with the whole story, and I, I, I still have yet to see the movie Zodiac, which is based mm. on that. Yeah, but, Robert Downey Jr. is in that, isn't he? Uh, is it? I'm, I'm not even 100% sure. Maybe. Mm. But I, I haven't seen it. I know it got very good reviews and you know good word of mouth, and I, I do plan on seeing it eventually. I'll, I'll catch it on cable at some point, yeah. but I've never, well, I haven't seen it yet. And so if you're going to talk about as well Harry's character and how the fact that he is he does have some rough edges a lot of the dialogue in this film wouldn't pass muster today which is why I think it still works today because there's still that slightly shocking element to it but then you've got Scorpio bleating about his civil rights after Harry tortures him to I find the girl a lawyer yeah and so you you're kind of on the back foot a bit when you're watching it because he's right and the Murr's right, and the chief of police is right, and everything Harry did to secure an arrest is wrong, and yet that girl's dead. So is I just love that that scene in the middle of it. Everyone remembers the "Do you feel lucky?" scene, and everyone remembers the great lines. But that scene in the middle, uh, not the middle, in the back third, where he actually says, "I'm all broken up about that guy's rights," is that's the film. That well, scene and, and, is and the, the other film. scene is, you know, he's he's clearly a better judge of character and being able to analyze the circumstances much better than everybody else. When they mm-hmm. when they when he says he's going to kill again, and they say, "How do you know that?" Because he, he likes, likes it. it. Yeah. So he knows who he's dealing with, and no one else realizes it. Yeah. It's just just so much that's great about it. Lalo Schifrin's score as well. Yeah, the score is remarkably the score is awesome. good. Absolutely brilliant. It's, well, it's it's got the haunting song music. It's got the the relentless beat backbeat music. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the chase scenes and everything, and it's got a, like a, a like a jazz quality to it in the lighter scenes. Yeah. Well, Schifrin was a jazz musician, so it it, it really captures the mood or creates the mood even more yeah. importantly throughout. 
Uh, and it's and not overly the... 70s either, is it? I'm sorry? It's not overly 70s either, the score. There's there's something no. to it that it's... It, there's a slightly timeless quality to it, even though it is very definitely of the time. Well, that, that the sound that you just made with the... Uh, that yeah. stuff, it's, it's very... Like, it puts you on the edge of your seat. It's not comfortable music at that moment. No. Well, I don't think the film is. I don't think the film's comfortable. No, and I, it's not I, the ending, to... yeah, cause, and the ending especially is uncomfortable. And it's not got a happy ending. It's not got the freeze frame ending. It's got Harry walking away in disgust. With with the light, uh, I don't even know what instrument is playing right then. But uh... it's a very quiet, subdued theme. It's a very subdued ending. Nobody was right. Nobody was wrong. Yeah, no, it was just everybody was right. Evil. Yeah, and it, it's it's that again another reason that the films become what it is. That ending haunts you and sticks with you, and the questions that the film are asking, which it doesn't give answers to. I'm always a big fan of that. I absolutely cannot stand stuff like Michael Moore, where it's one side of the argument and that's it. I'm not even going to pay any attention to the other side of the argument. This is that this is where Harry works for me. Because yeah, it gives it, you both no, sides. There's no effort to say Scorpio is has got a legitimate, you know, case or whatever. The, the it's it's basically it's the establishment and the accepted methodology and Harry's renegade methodology. Those are the two sides that are being put against each other. There's no point where they try and say, "Oh, look at Scorpio, poor Scorpio." When he's being mm. tortured, you're happy he's being tortured. Yeah. He deserves it. Yes, he absolutely does deserve it. But then you get to that that scene that I mentioned before, and you realise that they are right. He did break the law. And like you were saying earlier on, where, where does it stop that the police are allowed to break the law in the interest of doing the right thing? And that's another fundamental question for the film. I don't have an answer. The no. film doesn't give you an answer, and that's why it's a great movie. The uh, the actor who plays the uh, bank robber in the beginning, the I Gots to Know guy, <laughs> Albert Popwell. He's in the sequels, isn't he? he? He's in, I think, three of the five movies, maybe even four of the five movies, playing a different character in each one. Right. In Sudden Impact, he plays one of Harry's partners. Oh, right. Uh, I'm trying to remember what part he plays in the other ones, but I, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it. I'm oh, he, in, sure. In, in the Enforcer, he's the bank he, robber he's, in the second one. I'm sorry? He's a bank robber in the second one, isn't he? I'm not sure, but in the third one, he I think he's like a, a like a priest of some sort. Not a not a not a yes, Catholic he is. priest. He's, he's like a uh, like a Muslim priest. Yeah, Harry has a conversation with him outside the church. Yes. So I, I'm thinking he's just one of Harry, one of uh, Clint Eastwood's buddies. One of Clint Eastwood's go-to guys. And again, this film would be ripped off almost wholesale for Cobra. The Sylvester Stallone movie in 1986, which had Andy Robinson and uh, Rennie Santoni in it. Yeah, and Andy Robinson kind of played the "Hey, you can't do that" guy mm. in that one. That was that was a bad movie. This this was yeah, it's a terrible film, <laughs> but it it's just, great. It just shows you just having just having the renegade cop against the maniac killer is not enough. You need, you need more than that. This movie has it. That one didn't. There's no ambiguity to Cobra. No. Uh, what was it? Uh, crime is a yeah, disease, and I'm the cure. I'm the cure. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> that was so bad. Oh yeah, but it's a great film <laughs> because it's awful. It's absolutely terrible. Yeah, 
think the, I think uh, Rob Kelly's doing a uh, a retrospective of, of all the movies. Is that like a Globus movie or whatever? I think he's doing oh, a retrospective yeah. of those on film and water. So if you want to hear more about that one, go over and spend a little time with Rob. I'm looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I get a kick out of Rennie Santoni also, by the way, because first of all, he's Poppy from Seinfeld. But... Uh, <laughs> He's been in a lot of things. He was in The Odd Couple. He played an Eskimo college student. Uh, but he, uh, he, he also adds a different perspective to it because he's presented as the, you know, back in 1971, being a college graduate wasn't ubiquitous. Not everybody was a college graduate back then. In fact, I think the minority of people were. So he's, he's the police officer who's a college graduate who's, you know, kind of been trained in the liberal ways. And yet Harry wins him over. You know, when, when they when they have their, their philosophical discussions and all, mm. Chico sees Harry's side and sides with him. Even being, you know, the young cop, he's going against the rules to back up Harry because Harry needs somebody to back him up, you know, when, when he does mm. decide to go renegade on the, uh, the money drop-off. Mm. And he, that ultimately well, he, ends up saving Harry's life. I think he sees that a lot of Harry is bluster. When um, Robert Mitchum's brother <laughs> says Harry hates everybody, and he reams off a loads of derogatory terms that we're probably not allowed to say anymore. And he says, and, what, what, what about uh, what about Puerto Ricans? Ask him, especially Spicks. Yeah, he hates every, but but he clearly doesn't. Oh no, no, he he, he takes, clearly doesn't. He takes hate, Chico I mean, under the, his wing. He's clearly yeah. you know mentoring him. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the indication from that is Harry only hates the bad guys. He's got. He's perfectly happy with everybody else as long as you're a straight arrow. And look at the girls that he dates in the in the series. You know, it's Sandra not Locke. all well after, before Sandra Locke. They're not all pretty blondes. Well, there's in. I think it's in Magnum Force. He dates an Asian girl. Yeah. So that's clearly not somebody who's, who really hates everybody. And the fact that he goes about doing what he's doing isn't somebody who hates everybody. So he's giving off this persona of being uncurring. But he's clearly not. There's depths to him. It's, I just, I can't, it's a, yet another movie. I, I'm going to have to review a bad movie at some point because <laughs> yet another movie that I can't come up with enough superlatives for it. If you have not no, seen I, it, I, see I, it. Yeah, I, I think this is a perfect film. I really do. This for me is up there with Jaws and Back to the Future and The Terminator as one of those movies where the script is tight and pretty damn perfect. The casting's perfect across the board. The direction, the scenery shots of San Francisco, which looks gorgeous. San Francisco looks really nice in this film. Um, and the, the music, everything comes together in Dirty Harry to make a perfect movie. And at the end of it, you're still left with something for the mind as well. You're still left with something to chew on. It's not just disposable entertainment. It's worth uh, actually making mention of the cinematography in it because I do think it is standout in, in many ways. Like you said, the scenes of San Francisco, without being overly loving, show... Yeah, without being a travelogue. They, but they show you a beauty to the city, whereas the dark scenes tend to get a little grainy, a little hard to view at some points, and I think that captures the, the essence of what they're trying to make it you feel because they're, they're putting you into the moment. And I think... Bruce Surtees, who is the cinematographer in this, and work, uh, yet another guy who worked with Clint Eastwood frequently, mm. uh, I think he, he really did a solid job on this movie and probably doesn't get nearly enough credit. No. But I think it, cinematographers in general don't get that much credit. 
Well, I think it's because it's a 70s film. I still think that the 70s is one of the most interesting periods for movies because they look grimy. You know, mm. even Jaws looks a little grimy. The French Connection looks grimy. All of Robert De Niro's stuff in the 70s looks grimy. There's an earthy realness to 70s movies that went away in the 80s when we started making Miami Vice-type flicks, like Cobra that we just mentioned. That's glossy. It's a very glossy-looking film. It's a pop video. And we stopped making that kind of grimy, seedy-type movie yeah, as we got into the 80s. Comparing it to Cobra, which is an unfair comparison... Cobra, Not really. Cobra, Cobra rips this off. That's a perfectly fair comparison. <laughs> but Cobra, you never feel like you're part of the movie. You're never immersed in the movie. You always feel like you're watching a movie and, and everyone seems cartoonish. Yeah. In this movie, you do feel immersed into it and you understand... I'm not saying you agree with, because I'm even including Scorpio in this, but you understand the motivations of every character, and every one of them is three-dimensional. They're not cartoonish. Scorpio nope. is a sociopath, no question about yeah. it, and Absolutely. a psychopath. But you understand that, and you accept him for that, and you start seeing his motivations, and you do have some private moments with him. You do have the moment when he hires the thug to beat him up. Oh, God, Yeah. Or you have the moment when he's being interviewed by the press after that beating. A big guy, Callahan. That that whole scene. Yeah, and, and we, we see the the true ugly side of his nature. He is everything Harry pretends to be. He is a racist. He is a misogynist. He is a thoroughly unpleasant person. Yeah, and it, it's not just okay. He's just the nameless, faceless sniper. They give you so much more to him. And, and Andy Robinson, you know, he I, I would imagine he doesn't have that much screen time. But I think Andy Robinson makes the most of it. And this is not a long movie. This was... Uh, it's only about 102 minutes. minutes. Right. So it's, it's an hour and 40 minutes. It's not an especially yeah. long movie. And I would say probably Andy Robinson's on screen maybe half an hour total. Mm. You add it all together. Yeah. This was... The, was um, the Joker. What was his name? Jack Nicholson. Heath Ledger. Oh. <laughs> no, the other Joker. This was the Heath Ledger performance of its day. Yeah, I would say so. It's, it's, it's a change or a maturation of the villain where they start mm -hmm. giving you a little bit more of them and they start giving you a three-dimensional villain. And again, that's not to mean you understand his point of view in any way, shape, or form. And, and, you know, agree with him in any way, shape, or form. But you start to get into his psychoses. Yeah. And you start understanding a little bit of the way his mind works, although not as well as Harry understands it. And then, you know, we eventually start getting into that a little bit. I, I think it's more subtext in this movie. Uh, but I think, you know, later on we, we, you know, more Clint Eastwood than Dirty Harry, but Clint Eastwood mm. explores the, you know, if you have that great an understanding of, the bad guy what does that say about you and i yeah. think that's that's totally the movie tightrope which we discussed earlier and a little bit of unforgiven and oh absolutely and unforgiven too and that's that's mm. where he he kind of perfected it. he touched on it in tightrope and then he perfected it in uh in unforgiven mm. i think there's a reason that he waited a number of years to make unforgiven until he felt that he was ready to make it So we're running a little long now, and I'm going to 
ask you to shock everybody by giving your uh, review on this one, your uh, your ranking. You know the rankings. Uh, it is Jaws. <laughs> it is Jaws, no it question. It is. In fact, nope. people will be surprised to find out that if I had to rank movies, this probably ranks above Jaws on my list. Ooh, I, I think they're all on a plane. This well, and Jaws. If, if Back I, to the future, if I, Terminator. I can't even do a, a top 10 list. I think I would have to do a top 20 list because top 10 is just excluding too many great movies. Mm. But if I make my top 10 list, or my top 20 list rather, and it's constantly going by what I'm thinking, you'd see the list would constantly change. The, pretty much the same movies would be on it, but the sequencing would change throughout. Yeah, depending on what mood you're in. Yeah, but I, I, you know, consistently when I have tried to sit down and make my top list, this comes in somewhere around number five or six, somewhere around there for me personally. Whereas Jaws comes in usually right around the number ten mark. Yeah. To say it's, in my opinion, the tenth best movie of all time is far from criticizing. Hmm. No, I think it's. I think it's a perfect film. Well, if you're judging a perfect film on everything comes together. This is a perfect film. One one of my bases for judging that is, can I criticize any aspect of it? If I want to call it a perfect film, is there anything about it that I can truly criticize? And I have, I really have no, you know, if I'm doing the good and the bad, I have mm. nothing on my bad side for Dirty Harry, and I have nothing on my bad side for Jaws. No, I, I think it's, I mean, even the subtext, I mean, some people just pounced on it for its its conservative subtext. But I think if you're only seeing that in it, you're not analysing the film properly. You're not really looking at what it's saying. Because it's not just that. It is giving you a clearly defined layout of what the problems may be and how would you tackle them. And I don't think there's a simple answer to it. But I do think a lot of a lot of the criticism, if you go back and read the reviews from the time, there's one particular critic who just seemed to have a problem with Clint Eastwood. This movie was actually offered to several other stars mm. before, before Clint Eastwood took it. Yeah, more famous Sinatra, wasn't it? Sinatra was the most famous. And, and uh, there was also, uh, later on, George C. Scott indi indicated... Well, I'm just looking here at, at the list. It says John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, Robert Mitchum, Steve McQueen, and Burt Lancaster. And in a 1980 interview with Playboy, George C. Scott claimed that he was initially offered the title role, but the script's violent nature led him to turn it down. Well, the script went through a number of rewrites as well, until Eastwood was the guy who came in and said, I will do the first script, I'm not doing any of the rewrites. And uh, interestingly enough, the film was originally talked about being directed by Sidney Pollack or Irvin Kirshner. All right. That would have been I interesting. You know, I we, this has come up a couple of times now. It's, it started with Jaws, and it also came up with Lonesome Dove. When you start talking about other people in the roles, and now other people directing, it's difficult to know what we would have gotten. I think we wouldn't people have gotten this. Side on, on the side of, oh, what we got is is great, so we're lucky they did that. And I think more mm. often than not, that's probably true when we're talking about a classic movie like this. I don't think this movie would have been as good with any of the other actors, and I I, I think it would have been more. I think it would have been more glossy with Pollock or Kirshner. Mm. So, Paul Newman was mentioned as well. With Paul Newman, there's never any doubt that Harry's a good guy. Yeah, and he just give that smile and twinkling mm. blue eyes. And it's I love of... Paul Newman, but there would be no ambiguity to Paul Newman. Not that I don't think he could act it, but I think you just look at Paul Newman and go, he's not the bad guy, is he? 
I don't think that's this is the role for Paul Newman. No, I don't think so either. But the one the one thing like what I say is I, I don't know what we would have gotten, but I know what we got. And when you look at what we got and you say, okay, we got a perfect movie pretty much. So I'm glad it just went the way it did. Mm. There are other ones where I'm curious what we would have gotten. And then there are some where, where I'm very confident that what we got was right. You know, when, yeah. when you talk about uh, Rages of the Lost Ark, where they were thinking about having uh, Tom Selleck, who I love Tom Selleck, but you weren't going to beat out the performance Harrison Ford gave. No, I mean, or, sometimes... Or Rocky, I mean, where they wanted James Caan to be the lead. Yeah. Well, a lot of time, they make out that it's a big deal, don't they? That this actor lost this role to this other actor. And that happens a lot in acting. And actors learn to not be upset that they're not the first choice. They just go, all right, I'll take it and run with it. And Dirty Harry is now in the National Film Register. Yes. So I don't think you can argue that what we got wasn't successful. And you got to take into account, in 1971, you know, you had... uh... The, the actors we're talking about were all more established in the uh, American zeitgeist than Clint Eastwood was. Mm. Clint Eastwood's film career as of 1971, before he made this movie, his, his body of work was not really a spectacular American <laughs> American movie uh, roster. His, his, his greatest moments were in the Sergio Leone Man With No Name trilogy. Yeah, and otherwise, you know, you have uh, Hang 'em High... Oh. Uh, you have little bit parts in some like late 1950s, early 60s horror movies. You know, not, nothing real, of real, real significance. No, he was still the guy from Rawhide, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was a TV actor trying to make it at that point. You know, he was David Caruso yeah. <laughs> at that point. And we all know how well that worked out. So, you know, what, what he ended up, the career he ended up making, I think a lot of it was built on this movie. I think mm. he got this movie because of what he did in the Dollars trilogy. And just to you know, to be clear about that, the good, the bad, and the ugly is also in my top ten of all time. So mm. it's not like I'm putting those movies down at all. But this is the movie that I think brought him into American consciousness and made him the. I don't know if he, he if he's number one or if he's number two or whatever, uh, box office guy for the 1970s and 80s. I think it made him a worldwide superstar as well. So. You know, I can't can't rank this highly enough. If you have not seen it, I recommend it very, very highly. If you've not seen it, where have you been? <laughs> uh, some people, you know, some people, it's sad the lives they lead. They haven't seen Dirty Harry. What can I tell you? <laughs> but I think we'll sign out now and say thanks for coming along for the ride and see you Oh, next anytime. Time. You know that. Yeah. it's it's. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, Andy? Uh, here, mostly, talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen to the prophets is our deep space nine project that you and i and bill and occasional guest stars do uh as is keep and fly which is the firefly show which is you and i bill and occasional guest people they're both on two true freaks uh hey kids comics happens with me and michael my son every now and again now now that he's off to university that's here on two true freaks palace of glitting delights is my vanity project that's a year on two true freaks and fantastic cast i do with Stephen lacey uh, on ffcast.libson.com uh i'm gonna just chime in that i think calling i know you you've done it frequently but calling palace of glittering delights your vanity project i think sells it short and makes it sound like something that people might say eh, i don't need to listen to that one uh there's a lot of really really good stuff going on in that one and by vanity project i think all andy means is he covers the topic he feels like covering as opposed to it's anything to bolster his ego or you know anything like that so 
the title I don't think the title necessarily gives a window into what the show is so if you're not giving that one a shot please do and all the other ones especially the ones I'm on you should be listening to <laughs> you should be listening to that anyway because Paul's on it <laughs> well and thanks again for coming along and thank you everybody for listening we'll catch you next yeah. time thank you uh, I know what you're thinking punk you're thinking did he fire six shots or only five now to tell you the truth I forgot myself and all this excitement but being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> 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 <laughs>